Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founding editor of the podcast. Today on the podcast, we will be concluding our discussion of the business of orthopedics and practice management pearls and pitfalls with Dr. Jack Burt. If you remember from last month, we had left off discussing the pearls and pitfalls for early career surgeons, both in residency and within the first five years of their practice. In this episode, we will focus on the established surgeon, opportunities for alternative revenue streams, and transitioning out of practice. So without further ado, we will resume the discussion. Okay, Jack, how about for the surgeon in the prime of his or her career, those with experience, they've got an established team, a fairly set way of doing things. What tips do you have for that surgeon who may run the risk of potentially losing sight of the forest for the trees, so to speak, as they're in the prime earning years? Well, as you know, Chris, I'm an old guy. I've been in Medicare for over five years, and I still try to read every night for a half an hour to 45 minutes. And, uh, I, I love some of the folks on the East Coast who say they still are learning and reading and, and they're going to do that until they're dead. And I, I really believe that's that's key. It, get involved in an organization that you love. I know, Chris, for example, you're involved with Anna. I think that's awesome. You know, even teaching family docs, I, for years, uh, literally over 30 years, would offer at our hospital, they had a, a small family practice program associated with the University of Minnesota. And I would go once a, once a month and do what I call the hands-on teaching. I never showed a slide. And I'd get in front of a group of, say, 10 or 15 of these family docs. And I'd say, okay, we're going to examine the shoulder day. You get up here, sit in this chair. Okay, what are the rotator cuff muscles? Nobody's hand goes up, right? They don't have a clue. Uh, you explain that to them. What does the rotator cuff do? How do you check and see if the rotator cuff is torn? How do you do that on clinical examination? Does night, is night pain important? To me, the sine qua non of a torn rotator cuff, for example, is night pain. So I'll sit there and go through that with them, and you'll get the best teacher of the year half the time because you're doing a, sort of a fireside chat, if you will, and not showing slides for these kids to fall asleep with over the lunch hour. So I do that for half an hour once a month. And, uh, and they just love it. Uh, the, the, the seating is full. And even in the person that uh, runs that program, will say, you know, we'll get five people to show up when there's a lecture and everybody comes when you come because they enjoy the hands-on part of it. And so I teach them how to inject knees. You can, you can go to your uh, local reps for like Visco or even PRP. And they, they have these rubber models that fill up with water for an, with an IV tubing and then bring some needles, tell them to bring needles and syringes in and show them a direct lateral approach, which is the easiest thing to do for them. And Doug Jackson published this years ago, right? And showed that the lateral approach was the most efficient and most concise approach with over 92% of patients using fluoroscopy or even ultrasound to get in the knee from a lateral approach. So anyway, I show them that and uh, they think that's the greatest thing too. And then I'll show them with a dull needle how to do a subacromial bursal injection. So they feel comfortable doing some really basic injections. So uh, I think the answer to that is keep teaching, keep learning. If you're insecure about a new procedure, come to one of the courses that we have at the Orthopedic Learning Center. I was on that committee for um, two, two years, and I think that we do a great job in those teaching labs. I've been involved with the teaching labs, and 
even somebody who has very minimal knowledge of a new procedure, you get on one-on-one or two-on-one with a uh, somebody who's done 500 of them, you're going to learn quickly. So do not be afraid to still learn and don't be embarrassed by being the oldest guy in the group coming to one of these courses because we got a lot of guys in their 50s and some in their 60s who still come to our Orthopedic Learning Center courses. Okay, what thoughts do you have for the surgeon approaching retirement or looking to at least downshift in their practice? How can they remain active, remain relevant, and helpful to their practice while still taking some more time away for themselves? Yeah, great question. So uh, one thing I didn't mention, and this goes for the young kids as well, start your retirement plan right away. Uh, Get into a defined benefit pension plan if you can, if you're employed put the maximum amount away because I got to tell you, people ask me what you should have upon retirement and I'm, I'm embarrassed to give you the number, but it's, it's, it's a lot more than you'd think because the truth matter is when you get to 70 and a half, you can only, you take out 4% as a maximum required distribution. So let's assume you've got 5 million saved and some of you may be staggered by that number, but other people will tell you you need to have $10 million saved. And a lot of you are just picking yourself off the floor now, right? But at the end of the day, think, Think about it. If you take 4% out at the end of every year and you're used to spending two to $300,000 a year and then you have Social Security, so let's assume you had $10 million saved to take 4% out and you've got 50 in Social Security, that's $450,000 prior to taxation. So now drop that down to 300 after taxes and that's what you've got to live on. If you have $5 million saved, that's 200000 plus Social Security, that's two fifty. So my approach is unless you've got 10, 15 million stacked away, which is not likely for the majority of doctors, I would make the argument that you should consider doing something post-retirement or working out with your group a situation where you can make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year by seeing patients, referring the surgical procedures to them, and doing, say, two or three half-day clinics. That gives you a half-day to play golf tennis, do whatever the heck you want to do, take a couple weeks off uh, every month or two, or every two months, let's say, and keep working a part-time basis. One of the things I can tell you for sure is really in demand as you get older, and I'm saying older, saying 60 plus, even in your 50s, however, is medical legal work. I started an independent medical evaluation company in 1995, sold it in 2016, uh, to a company that does $1 billion, one, that's with a B, billion dollars worth of independent medical exams and legal evaluations and medical record reviews every year. It's estimated after I talk, had a couple of meals with this guy who owns it, who's a gazillionaire, as you can well imagine, there's $26 billion of medical legal work out there. So I tell people, and I do this myself, I do a half a day of medical legal work now per week, and I make as much in a half a day as I would have in two and a half days of practice net. And the reason is you can charge a lot of money to do medical legal work when you've got 30 years of practice behind you, because if you've got good credentials, you're still board certified. It's very tough for a young kid coming out, trying to do some medical legal work and having an opinion that's different than yours match up to yours when you can say, well, yeah, I've done several hundred of these or several thousand of these, and this is the way it is after a motor vehicle accident, for example, or after workers' comp injury. That doesn't mean you have to be a whore. It it means you just got to be honest, and you'd be just shocked 
at how much in demand you are. I'm booked out two months to just do a half a day of medical legal work where I make several thousand dollars in a morning doing that kind of work. And it's just easy money. And there's no risk. There's You walk away from it afterwards. There's no patient care involved. So I've told a lot of past presidents of Anna who are involved doing this now. I've told a lot of my friends who are in their 60s, and they think it's great because if you only have 4 or $5 million saved and you're used to a lifestyle which requires a little bit extra money besides that 4% of that $5 million in Social Security, it's nice to have one hundred fifty or $200,000 extra coming in, which you can do well into your late 70s and, st- and only work a half a day or two half days a week to get there. So bottom line is start looking at that kind of work activity, even though it's not a kick, it's not a lot of fun. It's not like putting a totally in or doing near shoulder arthroscopy. But the bottom line is there's a huge, huge need for that kind of work. So I think it's important for that extra potential income stream because older surgeons are very precious commodities in the medical legal field. So as you're trying to cut down, work with your group, uh, something that they'd be happy with because you're going to know a ton of people in the neighborhood and you can refer all your surgical cases. They're going to love you for it. They don't have to pay you a fortune. And if you want to do that versus the medical legal or do that a day a week, a day and a half a week and do a little medical legal for a half day, you can still have a very enjoyable time in retirement and just working a very, very part-time practice with virtually no stress associated with it. Again, fantastic uh, advice, Jack. Okay, can we discuss some concepts that apply universally across the board to all practicing surgeons, regardless of the phase of their career? I'd like to hear your thoughts on the current and future states of things like ancillaries, passive income, alternative income streams, I know we touched on a few of those in that last response, but potentially yeah. even some non-clinical opportunities. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, so, so you know, there, it's, it's fascinating. There's some CMO jobs that are out there. There's some, some consulting jobs. The problem with that, and I've been offered some of those, is that they require five days a week. And, I, I'm, you know, at my age, I just don't want to do that anymore. Two days a week is great. But those are some things you can do. I know that some docs are doing evaluations on professional athletes to check for disabilities. They're doing disability evaluations. So those are some non-clinical opportunities aside from the ones that I've talked about. I think ancillaries are definitely here to stay, and and that is significant passive income. And one of the things that I've told people who are employed uh, by hospital system or by a big healthcare system, and Dave Glazer, the attorney, can validate the comments I'm going to make because he said it many times, is that you can make that argument that you deserve to be much higher than that 50% MGMA threshold by stating, look, the guys in my area, in my practice area, are making 750 to 850. That's the average salary. I know that because I have friends who are doing it. For you to sit there and tell me, and I'm doing the same workload and only making four to 500, and the difference is, is they're making an additional three to 400 in answer revenue. So the administrator then will respond, well, you know, we can't do that because we can't give you ancillary revenue. It's owned by the hospital. So your immediate counter should be fine. Raise my RVU to $80 per RVU. Well, we can't do that. It's, it's above the threshold. Well, but you're missing my point is how I respond back. If, if all everybody else in the community is getting all this ancillary revenue, why the heck shouldn't I have a higher RVU base? to allow me to achieve a higher salary position. 
And, and that's the way a lot of employers are doing it. And, and I can tell you, they do that in St. Paul, Minnesota for their employed docs. And that's why these guys are making the same as the private docs. They do that in Minneapolis, Minnesota as well, so that the the employed docs don't have the desire to quit working, even if they might have a short-term no-compete, and go with a private group. And that's the way you keep a really good employed physician group, and they're still making a fortune for the hospital system. So just keep that in the back of your head. Again, uh, I do believe that because of the massive shift to outpatient cases, the hospitals have got to provide their surgeons with good income, high income levels, or that shift's going to continue. And if the hospital cannot provide those kinds of incomes, they're not going to get great orthopedic surgeons to stay, ones that are high quality, and they're going to suffer. And, and I'm seeing that happen in some areas, and it's sad, but it, it is going to be a, a huge problem in the future. So again, make sure that you make them aware Collect those EOBs if you're employed, and I'd even do it in private practice so that next time you sit down with the senior guys, say, hey, wait a minute, look how I'm doing here. And when we when we have our meetings, if we're salary-based, the guys who are, are doing more work should, should get bonuses at the end of the year. Okay. Going back to your presidential address from 2009, and with the benefit of now an additional decade of experience and hindsight. Can you better answer your own question, which was, can the private practice of orthopedic surgery survive the 21st century? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question as well. And I think the answer is without question, yes. I started a company two years ago uh, called MD Direct. And what we've been doing is linking up employers through brokers, third-party administrators, cost management companies, which is, trust me, is a, is a whole learning experience uh, for me to understand these people, uh, but they basically what they do is they sell plans to employers. So the employers trust the brokers, the third-party administrators, and their cost management companies. But the problem is they really don't understand it very well. They don't understand musculoskeletal care well. Over 22 to 24% of the spend for an employer is musculoskeletal. And when the GPs get a hold of a patient with any type of an injury, first thing they do is send it to physical therapy. I, I've got a, a plethora of cases that patients who've been addicted to narcotics that, are on, that have osteoarthritis that should have had injectables. They should have been treated with a significant injectable care. They even should have had a round of physical therapy and then a home program with weight loss programs, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is, is that if you can link up employers to value-based groups, that do cost-effective care, that are doing bundled payments, that are willing to work with an employer, you'd be shocked at how well those groups then do and how we kind of push the insurance companies out of the middle step of you, if you will, of this equation. We've got a whole series of pilot programs going and our average savings right now is 30% on musculoskeletal care just by trying to get the you know, the insurance companies out of the equation. Employers love it because they know that that patient's going to get good care by a high quality provider. And we do some managing of the case, my group of guys, to make sure that not everybody with complaints of knee pain jumps right into a total knee, but it's very gentle management because the groups that we chose have chosen are high quality groups that are cost effective. 
you know, it's funny, insurance companies, when you sit with them, define quality as outcomes over cost. So if you have good outcomes at a low cost, you're considered a high quality provider. The problem with the bundle payments in the past and why you'll see articles saying bundle payments don't work with some insurers or even with Medicare is that some of us, unfortunately, jump right to total knees, potentially your total hips a little too quickly without trying to work on more conservative care pathways. And, and so there's been a huge increase in total needs. Now, that doesn't mean we're at fault because obesity is rampant. We all know that there's going to be a 400% jump in total knee replacement, we know, by 2025. been published in some studies eight times up to 2000, at 2030. So we know it's out there and we know it's a huge problem. But I can tell you for a fact that if we put the pedal uh, on this a little bit and use some of the injectables, you can stall that. And uh, there's been some great articles published using visco supplements, using PRPs now. And there's a study out of Rush with our current Anna president, uh, Brian Cole, using PRP and high molecular weight visco, showing even better results, approximating even some of the stem cell studies that have been done out of the country in terms of success rates and moderate uh, to mild OA of the knee. So if you can push it off, you know, some of these knee replacements off by up to seven years, according to David Waddell's work and some of the uh, quality of life year studies that have been published showing that for every year you postpone a total knee, it's up to $19,800 savings and expense. And that's a study by Hatoum, H-A-T-O-U-M. So we know that if we're conservative in private practice and even in employed practice, we can, we can do a good job of postponing some of these things. To get back to the question though, I do believe that with this trend now going from employers to providers, which I think is going to become very significant over the next three to five years, you saw what Kaiser's done out in California, where they'll fly you down for their total, for your total knee from Washington or Oregon and do the bundle for 24,000, give you two nights in a hotel and then fly you back. And, and it's caused some of the orthopedic groups in uh, the Seattle and Portland area to lose market share. But what they're doing is trying to make the point that if once you get to that need for a total knee, if you're cost effective, if you're value based, you can sort of bump the insurer out of there and go right to the employer and have a scenario where at a reasonable price, you get a very good result. And so you're seeing bundles in meniscectomies and shoulder scopes, rotator cuff tears, and employers are grabbing onto these groups that are doing this. And it's, I think it's really exciting. So the answer to your question is yes. For private practice, I think they're going to do very well, especially those that have their own ASCs. The only caveat there would be if groups like Tenant and some of the massive companies like United Healthcare buy out the practices, then what might happen is you'll be forced to work where they want you to work, which hopefully will be at the ASC that they just bought out from you because they're going to want you to be efficient. They're going to want you to be cost effective as well. So I think the future of orthopedics is very bright and, and I'm not worried whatsoever, but I do think it's critical to keep an eye on the things that we've talked about during this presentation. And I hope it's been of some help to everybody. Absolutely. I think that's uh, encouraging and optimistic. And I think uh, as long as we have buy-in as the surgeons, you know, I hope the future is bright, as you say. Now, in closing, I would be remiss if I did not capitalize on a rare opportunity to put you on the spot. It is likely a little-known fact amongst surgeons of my generation that Dr. Steve Burkhart was actually one of your junior residents 
when you both were in training at the Mayo Clinic. Would you do us the honor of sharing your favorite anecdote about those days in the interest of preserving a little bit of oral history of orthopedics from two famous surgeons? <laughs> well, that's funny because Jim Rand, who became president of the Knee Society, and there's a uh, there's an institutional lecture at the Knee Society every year for him. And then, of course, Steve, who is one of the nicest, most creative, intelligent people I've ever met, extremely shy. Some people mistake that for uh, maybe a little bit of arrogance, and there's not a shred of arrogance in Steve Burkhardt. He's just an incredibly talented, thoughtful human being. I, I, I have a, There's some funny stories I could tell you about Steve, but Steve was involved when I had developed a uh, a loop probe electrocutting cautery back in the late 80s, published it in 1992 because I was I was telling stories about how I would arthroscrape, uh, which is where I think that term actually came up from, sadly to say, probably from me, the ephemeral condyle and tight knees because we all we had back then was 4.5 millimeter scopes and big upbiters. So you're sitting there stressing the knee over and you got a tight knee and get open three to four millimeters so you'd kind of clip a little bit of the femoral condyle so I got involved with Concept, which was a uh, arthroscopic company back then, developing this loop probe electrocautery, which was this little V-shaped cautery with an open wire at the end. So you could stick it under the femoral condyle, bend a little bit, and just get back and it lifts out the torn meniscus and not even touch the femoral condyle. The problem is you have to use glycine. I had Steve Snyder use it for a while. And uh, the problem was you had to burn your way into the joint, which turned off everybody. And you were, you were using somebody something electrical inside the joint which of course everybody does all the time now, but it scared the hell out of everybody back then. So I was using glycine like the uh, urologists uh, were doing, uh, which is where I got the idea. And then I started using water, which are two very non-conductive uh, fluids. So there was myself, I think one gentleman in, in Japan that were using it and we'd communicate and said we both loved it. And I did about 4,000 to 4,500 e-scopes back then using this device. And Steve tried it and for some reason ended up using uh, 18 liters of glycine, I think, or some huge number of liters because he was having some difficulty in the knee back then because he wasn't doing a lot of shoulder arthroscopy. And, and one of his patients got temporary blindness. So he brought that up at a meeting and, and uh, I laughed about it. And I, I, I said to him on the point, I said, wait a minute, Steve, when would you ever use 18 to 19 or whatever it was, 10 units, uh, 10 liters of glycine? He got real shy and got very quiet in the back and didn't say anything anymore. But um, of course, then the rest is history with him. He became this absolutely brilliant shoulder surgeon. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, uh, using glycine, if you stay under five liters, which I'm sure most of you, when you do knee scopes, probably aren't using more than two to three, there's never been a reported case of temporary blindness in the um, recovery, which which has been reported, by the way, in the urologic literature for extremely long cases. So Steve went on uh, to become a, a brilliant resident at Mayo and uh probably the most well-known arthroscopic shoulder surgeon in the world and has been a good friend for 40 years. And uh, I don't think there's enough superlatives you can say about Steve Burkhardt, an amazing human being. Well, I think the funniest part of that story is that it had to do with knee arthroscopy and not shoulder. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it's a much more contained spot, right? You don't you don't blow up the knee as much. Uh, you don't get extravasation so much as you do in the shoulders. Maybe that's the reason it wasn't a problem. But you know, it's fascinating. Uh, I'll tell you one other quick antidote. When Lanny Johnson developed uh, the staples, uh, which I put a bunch in the shoulder and I put a ton of them in the knee to try to staple back the origin of the cruciate ligament when it pulled off from the femur back in the 80s, because we didn't, really didn't have anything back then. And then I came up with the idea of using a, uh, 
a hamstring tendon and looping it through the stable and punching it up there and then putting it at about 11 o'clock, right? Because uh, I didn't know any better. Uh, but the truth of the matter is those worked really pretty darn well if you put them in tight and then just brought them down through the um, tibial insertion of the cruciate and then uh, attaching suture and tying them over a screw. And so I did that for probably five years. And a lot of those little staples did great. The problem in the shoulders, if you didn't bury them, to try to you'd capture some of the anterior capsule and labrum them and then just pound it in to the inferior glenoid. It only took about 25 minutes to do that and just kind of burr up the front of the uh, glenoid from the front and put the staple and capture the tissue. And those work okay for a short time frame. And then, of course, we started to use the cautery, you remember that, and, and just kind of go up and down and that would shrink down the capsule and those didn't work at all well. But the problem with the staple and the reason it was condemned so much is people would leave it proud and then it would really scrape the humeral head and cause severe damage. So you have to take them out. But you have to really bury the darn thing so they would cause a problem. So that was the way we would treat early dislocations of the shoulder and doing anterior ligaments. And Lanny was, you know, you talk about pioneers in their field. He was, he was really a true pioneer of the field. And I'll tell you one last quick antidote before we leave. I, I don't know if you ever heard the story about how the Arthroscopy Association got its name, but Bob Jackson, Lanny Johnson, John McGinney were sitting down one day, and this has got to be I think, 1980 or 1979, and they were going to call the North American Arthroscopy Association, and Lanny looked at her and he said, you really want to call this organization, nah, and so it got changed to Anna, so people wouldn't say the nah organization, so anyway, that's how, that's how the name Anna actually was introduced. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a lot of worse acronyms that they could have come up with. Jack, I'm always so grateful for your time and mentorship. Thanks for sharing your time and your thoughts with us today, and especially for the hard work you've put into advancing the practice for orthopedics throughout your career on behalf of all surgeons and patients. Dr. Burt, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure, Chris. Take care. Dr. Burt's presidential address and commentary titled, Can the Private Practice of Orthopedic Surgery Survive the 21st Century? can be found in the July 2009 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.